Dr. Nasheter. Dr. Nasheter, a trained clinical and forensic psychologist. Psychopath. Psychopath. Dangerous, violent psychopath. How would you explain what a psychopath is? Psychopath is somebody who, they lack empathy. They're considered to have no remorse and regret for what they do. They can be pretty lawless. As a guy, the woman can suppress the guy, push all his friends away from him and his family away from him, so he's got no one to go to. He's getting completely manipulated. He gets told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. It's like complete control over him. Mm. You can't see it. Welcome to the Eventful Lives podcast. I'm your host, Dodge, and I'm the founder of Bournemouth Sevens, the world's largest sports and music festival. On this podcast, I speak to fascinating people who have all lived eventful lives. If you haven't already, do us a favour, press the follow button and check us out at Dodge Woodall on Instagram, TikTok and YouTube, where we've now had over 80 million views. Dr. Nasheter is a psychopath expert who reveals all the hidden characteristics of narcissistic people in our everyday life. From relationships to business, we delve into how you can pick out these behaviours that help you understand a crazy partner or boss. This is a mind-blowing episode and I loved every minute of it. This is the eventful life of Dr. Nashita. Nashita, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dodge. Great to be here. Yeah, very much looking forward to this one. Let's, um, let's roll all the way back. Where did you grow up and how did you become a psychopath expert? <laughs> well, I grew up in the Midlands here in, in the UK, Stourbridge that area just outside Birmingham. Um, not really city centre, but yeah. If you know the the geography around the Midlands, mm. yeah, Stourbridge. Yeah. Was there till I was about 13. Um, and then we moved to K- Kings Winford, which is just a little further out. And then we, I went to university in Liverpool. So I moved around England quite a lot. How did I get to be working with criminals and people classified as psychopaths? Yeah. Well, I went to university to study psychology. Loved it. Loved that part of psychology that they call abnormal psychology, or mm. they did back in the day, you know, kind of the extreme ends of people's personalities and behaviors and choices. Got fascinated with that and ended up training as a clinical and forensic psychologist. Uh, for my profession. And once I did that, I ended up working in what we call special hospitals. You'll have heard of things like Broadmoor and Ashworth and those yeah. places. And I, I trained at Ashworth and then eventually got a job at Bro- Broadmoor. At Broadmoor? Mm. Is that where all the yeah. prisoners go to if they are a little bit tapped? Tapped, is that your... Yeah, your... <laughs> that's my kind of terminology, <laughs> that, I guess. That's the technical term. Is that the, like the sort... What would you, Explain to me what Broadmoor is in your world. Yeah, so it's a good question, actually. When when somebody commits a very violent crime yeah. and they're considered to require conditions of maximum security, there are two options, really. They'll either go to prison yeah. or they can go to something called a special hospital. And Broadmoor is one of a few special hospitals we have in the UK. And the difference is if you go to prison, you're considered bad in the sense that, you know, there was no other reason for you committing a crime other than you chose to do it. There were no other mitigating circumstances. But if you have a mental disorder, you were considered psychiatrically unwell, or there was some association with mental illness when you committed the crime, then you may be considered for going into a hospital, a special hospital they're called, rather than into a prison. Mm. And the reason for that would be we think we can treat the psychiatric illness or condition that you have that might reduce your 
your dangerousness. So you might go into somewhere like Broadmoor for treatment, but you wouldn't go into a prison for treatment. Yeah. So you're distinguishing between people's motivations or causes for their offending, actually, when you get into that yeah. distinction. How would you explain what a psychopath is? Well, it's a really good question. You know, a psychopath, and we use it really loosely, don't we? Yeah. Um, and people refer to, you know, their friends and their bosses and, you know, partners, even as psychopaths. There is actually a formal way of classifying psychopaths, and there's a whole set of criteria that go with it. But what's interesting is it's not actually a diagnosis. So a psychopath is somebody who, you, you, you recognize some of these things that have been talked about, widely talked about, they lack empathy they're considered to have no remorse and regret for what they do. They can be pretty lawless, you know, happy to break rules, uh, do whatever it takes to get whatever it is that they need from a situation or another person. And they have a strong sense of maybe a grandiose sense of self, you know, really, really confident about who they are yeah. um, and very keen to make sure that other people appreciate that. Um, so you'll find if you come into contact with somebody who's classified actually as a psychopath, they are more likely to have committed quite either violent crimes or been violent, yeah. if not crimes, but been violent. So psychopaths, are, it's a, the, the classification of psychopathy is actually very distinct. I will say it's not a diagnosis. Mm. We'll get into that maybe later, mm. but it's not a diagnosis actually. It's just a, a, a term we use to classify people with certain behaviours. Mm. Interesting though, you say like no empathy, Yeah. all of the things you mentioned there that, that, you know, when I was growing up, if you're a psycho rugby player, you're like, oh my God, that's the bloke you want in your team and not in the opposition team. He's a psycho, he's a nutter. You know, but this, the word has been touted around for years, right? Right. Even at school, he's a psycho. You know, it's just been used like that. But actually, as we've grown up, a psychopath, I always thought it was linked to murders or some serious crime, which it is as well. But right. it could be related to someone's other half. It could be related to someone's wife or girlfriend for well, the traits you just mentioned there. Well, if you think about it, when you're saying, you know, you point at the guy in rugby who's a bit psycho. Yeah. What we're typically doing when we do that is we're pointing out behaviours that we think are unusual or extreme. You know, that maybe they're unpredictable, maybe they're erratic, maybe they're very emotional, maybe they're a bit rough physically. You know, maybe they can literally fly off the handle yeah. and get physically aggressive. That's the kind of reason we call people psycho in that sense. So, yeah, for sure, we can. when we think of psychopaths or calling somebody a psychopath, we should think about it as a continuum. It's not an either or. You're not either a psychopath or you're not. We talk about them having traits or, or characteristics mm. that can be very severe and very mild. So you might, you know, I was talking about Broadmoor, that's where you, if you're going to see somebody who's classified as a psychopath, you're going to see the extreme end of the spectrum, somebody who's committed a very violent crime, um, maybe even murder or very sexually violent crime. And in society, in our kind of general conversations and relationships with other people, we might see people who maybe only show a few of those characteristics. Mm. Maybe they they show a little bit of, you know, callousness. They're not great at showing empathy. They're not very good at being sensitive to other people's feelings. They're not going around beating people up on the street. Yeah. Maybe we fear there's a risk of them doing that. Yeah. You know, so when we say they're a bit psycho, maybe that's what we're picking up on. Mm. But I think psycho dodge is used very widely by people to say somebody who's a bit different, maybe a bit crazy in the in the loose sense of the word mm. not necessarily psychopaths who are you know a, a very particular type so of on your journey person. of studying psychopaths yeah. tell me the journey some some of the people that you've met across the many years the many decades that you've been working in this industry so you'll you'll have heard some of some of the names of people who've ended up in these special hospitals like peter sutcliffe 
who was the Yorkshire Ripper. Yeah. Um, he's in a special hospital, one of the Crays. He was considered to be um, ill. His brother wasn't and he was in prison and the other one was ended up in special hospital. So those are some of the people who, you know, we would we would have heard of in the media mm. and we've kind of grown up and around in the mm. UK that we would have recognised mm. to end up as not necessarily psychopaths, but mentally ill. Mm. I mean, you might all argue, and many people did, that at least one of the craze was was a psychopath. You know, yeah. he was committing crimes and violent crime purely with the intention of harm, mm. whereas his brother was considered to also have a mental illness. So, yeah, yeah those are some of the kind of famous people that we've mm. come around. Um, Peter Sutcliffe was actually, I think, more considered to be mentally ill and that mental illness was driving his his behaviours, mm. his his offences. Did you have to meet any of these? I have met them, yeah. Have you? Yeah, I met them in Broadmoor. Mm. Wow. Yeah. What sort of rough year was that? What kind of rough year yeah, was Yeah, rough, sort of roughly, what oh, sort of year was gosh, that? Oh, gosh, that was way back when I was working in Broadmoor, so that would have been around 91 to 90... Five, six, okay. something like that. And what was yeah. that feeling like for you, knowing you're going to... Where is Broadmoor in the country? It's in Crowthorne, which is in Berkshire. Is it? Mm, and it's a, it's hidden away. It's not something you kind of... You know, there's no big signs for it, obviously. Yeah. Um, it's tucked away in a very small village called Crowthorne, not far from Reading. And Broadmoor, just explain to me what Broadmoor actually looks like. It's a prison. If you, you said you, you said it's like a hospital. Well, if you look at it from the outside, it's got the enormous walls that yeah. you would expect to have for a high security environment mm. with, with the barbed wire on the top and you can't see into the hospital from the outside. And there's a lot of security, obviously, to get into the, into the building. Inside, and there have been a lot of renovations recently, there was a part of the hospital, I'm not sure how much of it is left, was that was the very old psychiatric, you know, part that has been around for, for decades that felt and looked when you walked through the corridors, felt and looked like an old psychiatric mm. institution. Um, kind of long, dark corridors with the with the individual rooms and the day rooms um, off the corridors. And you had the feeling of going back in time. And then there was there are new parts to the hospital, which are new builds, which look like any other building that you mm. would go into except for the fact that there are a lot of locked doors mm. and there's a lot of security around so surprisingly and i found this when i when i worked there once you're inside the walls and once you're walking around meeting these people who've committed these you know terrible crimes that you may have read about in the media or if you haven't they are you know quite shocking you quickly realise that you're actually relatively safe in there. These people are now locked up and they're now under supervision. And in, at least in, in the special hospitals, they're getting treatment. So it's not a scary environment to be in. I mean, you have to keep your wits about you. You have to mm. be conscious that a lot of these people can be unpredictable and are dealing with a lot of, of um, challenges that can make them perhaps still be a risk of hurting you or becoming violent to each other or to, to the staff. Mm. But you're, it's it's not as we might fantasise to be a you know a terrifying environment to be in when you're on the inside. Mm. I always used to say I'm more worried about the ones who haven't been caught who are still walking the streets yeah, yeah. than walking around the corridors of Broadmoor. Mm. And what was that feeling like for you? This is talking like 25, 30 years ago. What was that feeling like for you going into Broadmoor? Like you've been studying. Was your goal to say, I want to be in Broadmoor? I want to understand the mindset of these killers or these extremely yeah. violent people? It was actually because I was I'd studied quite a lot as I said to you earlier you know abnormal psychology it was called back in the day the the idea that there is a, a spe 
a spectrum of our behavior, any one of us, and this always fascinated me, could any one of us find ourselves in a situation where we commit to these kinds of crimes or you know, become extremely violent to the point where we might kill someone. Is that what you wanted to know? Whether any of the normal bod in right. the street could be like that? Yeah. Okay. You know, is, are they are they peculiar? Mm. Are their brains different? Are they hardwired differently? Are they born that way? That fascinated me, and I wanted to kind of really understand what drives somebody to commit those kinds of crimes. Not just for the fascination of knowing, but also can we do anything to stop that happening? Yeah. You know, if we could figure out the reasons why people do these things, perhaps we could come some way in, mm. in preventing them from happening. And what did you find out then? Because the people we've had on here on the show over the last 150, 160 episodes, if they have been extremely violent or if they are a bank robber or they are a, a, a fighter or whatever they've been in their time, they normally have had some sort of trauma as a kid, right. whether it's sexual abuse, whether it's many things. Have you found anything sort of related to what's happening in psychopaths? Absolutely. There's a, perhaps a slightly controversial point I'll make here, but in all the cases in that I dealt with in Broadmoor and some of the prisons I, I, I visited, there is always a story as to why, you know, the person has ended up where they are mm. or committing the crimes that they have. Always a story. And in, it's certainly my experience in all the cases, there were childhood traumatic experiences or abusive experiences or neglect, you know, whatever uh, words you put to that, but very, very difficult childhood experiences. And actually, in order to be classified as a psychopath, you'd often look for those very early experiences. We call it conduct disorder in, in children, adolescents. You know, the idea that they are breaking rules early, maybe even, you know, hurting one of the classic criteria might be, are they violent or abusive towards animals, you know, vulnerable animals? Are they doing that at a young age? showing those signs of lack of empathy that we yeah. talked about you know can you see that from a young age are they getting into fights are they you know pushing all those limits and testing all those boundaries even from a young age and we can see that pattern in people who are classified as psychopaths yeah. that they have been those childhood experiences controversially and i would always say this to the guys and women i worked with it's not a cause and effect though it's not a causing effect. It's not a cause and effect. So okay. just because you've had a traumatic childhood doesn't explain or give you cause to then behave in a violent okay. way. Because plenty of people have had those childhood experiences and don't go on to kill mm. or rape or murder. Mm. So it's not enough to say, ah, oh, because of those childhood experiences, now we see why you did that. Because that would, that would in some ways say, well, that was the reason you did those things. But yeah. what about all the people who had the similar experiences and didn't go on to do it? Mm -hmm. So at some point, we have to look at also personality. We need to look at decision making. We need to look at motivations. You know, it's not just about, well, I had a very difficult childhood. And so obviously, mm -hmm. I was going to find myself going off the rails and doing these things. So if you're a parent now out there and you're seeing your six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old punching, fighting at school, going crazy, going off the rails a bit. And as they're getting older, it's getting worse and worse. What would, what would you suggest to do? It's a great question. I think we have to look at this, you know, not catastrophize those kinds of behaviours. It's not unusual for kids to push boundaries and to, you know, not all kids, but they will push boundaries, they will test limits. And if there are isolated incidents, I think that's just something to think about, you know, how you're, how you're speaking to them about what's right and what's wrong, you know, how you encourage that moral code in children about doing the right thing and showing empathy towards other people and taking care of your, you know, your fellow citizens. I mean, one of the things we say about psychopaths is they don't have that moral compass. Mm. 
they don't care about the consequences to other people. Is that the biggest thing, do you think, out of a psychopath? They don't care of the consequences. They don't care what people think. There is zero empathy. There's zero empathy. And I think, you know, what really distinguishes them is that they really don't think what they're doing is wrong. You know, we, we've, you can, for example, you might have heard of terms like narcissism. Yeah. You know, the narcissist may have similar characteristics to somebody who's psychopathic. So they may have that sense, a grandiose sense of self. You know, I'm really important. I need validation, seeking that from other people. You know, that I am as great as I believe myself to be and, and controlling other people and manipulating situations and people yeah. to, to get that feeling. But the key difference is they know what they're doing is right or wrong. Whereas at the extreme end of the spectrum with psychopaths, they really do believe what they're doing is right. How mad is that? Right. I mean, that- to actually think, <laughs> I know I've hurt somebody else. And I, but the justification, excuse me, <clears throat> the justification will be, well, I was entitled. You know, they did me wrong. I remember a guy I worked with who had extreme road rage to the point where he got out of the car and, and, and practically beat the other guy to death. Mm. You know, pulled him over on the M4, got out of the car. They got into an altercation and beat him to a pulp. And I was interviewing him about, you know, what had led to such an extreme reaction. Of course, you can get road rage and you can, you know, have words with each other and mm. maybe even pull over and, mm. you know, wave fingers, mm. but to the point where you would lose such control that mm. you would almost kill someone. And no matter how many different perspectives and angles we took that from, you know, empathy for the person who's being beaten, well, there was zero empathy. He shouldn't have, you know, he should have known better. He was an idiot. He was a crap driver, you know, got all of that. And then we looked at it, you know, what about the impact on his his life going forward, you know, and his family, because this guy ended up with severe head injuries. And he said, well, he brought it on himself. Well, what about the law? Let's get down to the basics. Mm. It's actually against the law yeah. to, you know, to do that. Well, the law's wrong. You know, this is stupid. I was, I'm justified. People shouldn't be allowed to do that. You know, he pushed my boundaries. He pushed my buttons. I was simply reacting. So then it does, I mean, it is yeah. wild, isn't it? Yeah. But at that end of the spectrum, that's what you'll hear. Mm. The justifications, the explanations, the I was defending myself, I was justified, I was entitled. So basically that's not taking any responsibility. No. Which then must be a sign of being a psychopath as well. There's no there's no regret and remorse. You know, it's a classic characteristic of, of the particularly the criminal psychopaths. Mm. You know, that there there will be you know, I don't regret it. I was justified at the time. It was the right thing to do at the time. I might regret it. You might, you know, one of the great things you'll you'll see from, I say great things, I, you can tell I'm nerdy about the subject mm. when I say great, but, you know, I find interesting is how superficially charming and pleasant they can be when you're speaking to them and how they can, you know, seduce you into agreeing with them if you're not wiser to it, you know, with all these clever explanations about, you know, well, it, if I, if he hadn't been driving badly, I wouldn't have needed to pull him over and mm. give him a word. And if he hadn't, you know, pointed his finger in my face, I wouldn't have had to punch him, mm. you know, and kind of trying to explain a lot of logic. But there will be no regret or remorse associated with the with the act. It'll be the only bit that you'll get the, the kind of slightly charming bit will be, I regret the fact that I've ended up in prison. Right. Yeah. And for nas- people with narcissism, you might get, you'll get perhaps more empathy, but it'll be very much around the people that they really care about and they love, or perhaps even their pets. But it won't be necessarily for the victims of their behaviour mm. who they, you know, have no Because narcissists can actually have no empathy to their friends and around them and push everyone away. Or a narcissist 
For example, if we use the guy married to a, a woman, the woman can suppress the guy, push all his friends away from him and his family away from him, so he's got no one to go to. That's narcissism as well. Is there a bit of psychopath in that as well? So let's let's good good question. Let's yeah. let's distinguish between them. So the the narcissist is looking for validation that they are the great person they believe themselves to okay. be. Underneath that, you know, if we get very nerdy about it, it's actually a very fragile ego that's trying to, you know, build themselves up and and get everyone to believe the hype they believe about themselves. But underneath that, they're really really quite a vulnerable person who perhaps feels quite inadequate, yeah. doesn't feel as great as no portraying substance. themselves yeah. to be. But the way to defend against that, to stop people finding out that they feel inadequate, is to put on this massive, you know, act, if you like, of of grandiosity and then get people to validate it. So get into relationships with, you know, men or women, you know, narcissists can be male or female, but men or women who will, you know, they can literally feed from to get that validation you know get into a relationship where the person adores you where you you know you've heard things of like love bombing love where bombing, you yeah. you throw a lot of attention at someone you might have selected them and picked them because you think they're a bit vulnerable they're a bit bit needy maybe they're looking for a relationship they're impressed by you so you know you really want to get to feed off that and get as much validation for this great person that you are as quickly as possible, which is why love bombing is so important to the narcissist. You know, I need that feedback quickly, but I'll get you hooked quickly. And once once I've got that, then I've got more control because now you want it. Now you want more of this that I'm giving you. Mm. And the the awfulness of the experience for the person who's on the other side of that relationship is it's not consistent. And it won't be consistent because the psychology mechanism that's at play is if I tell you you're wonderful all the time, if I love bomb you all the time, eventually that might lose its power. So I've got to at times withdraw it so that you will then seek it. You'll come after it again. I'll pull wow. away. I'll pull back. Yeah. And then you won't know what's going on. You'll get confused. And then you'll want to come in and find out. And you'll want to try and get me to behave in that great way again. So you'll try different things. You'll try and please me. You'll appease me. You'll ask me questions. You'll behave well. You'll do as you're told. Can you see how the control wow, is building? Yeah. Wow. And you know where this comes from, yeah. George? This comes from this, um, and you'll record, everybody will recognize mm. this. This comes from the psychological principle of addiction. And if you, let's take it into the everyday realm. Think about a fruit machine, you know, those old mm. kind of fruit machines that you see in pubs and people mm. go and put money in. If they paid out every time you put money in, you know, I mean, first of all, they'd be broke and mm. you'd be well off. But the, the addiction is in seeing if you can second guess and beat the system. So the principle it works on is we will only reinforce you, i.e. give you money out sometimes. It's called intermittent reinforcement. Yeah. And when you only reinforce intermittently, meaning sometimes, then you keep the person trying because they want to see if they can beat it and make it happen more often. So we get addicted because we get really strong reinforcement. We mm. get to pay out sometimes. Mm. And then we want to try and make that happen again. So we will keep putting money in mm. and money in. But the whole system is designed not to give you the payout all the time or you'll stop going for it. Mm. It's the same in relationships with these narcissistic tendencies. If I love bomb you all the time, eventually you'll get used to it. I'll get exhausted and the power of the, the behavior will diminish. Mm. So actually by withdrawing, you will fight harder mm. and I will keep you there because you know I'm capable of it. And now you feel, which is what I wanted you to feel, that you are the reason I'm either nice or awful. What to do with me? Yeah. I can make you feel bad about mm. whether I'm behaving well or not.
very powerful. They can see how destructive it is. So destructive. Right? Now you can see why people really do fall apart when they're in these relationships because they're trying to constantly work out what this formula is. It's confusing. It's, and it's supposed to be confusing. It's deliberately confusing. I've got a friend who's in a relationship like this. Oh, wow. And it's all of us can see, but he can't see. And his friends and family have been pushed away. Hmm. But he can't see it. And you know they say love is blind. Right. How would you explain what love is blind? Well, in that context you've described, this is what happens. So eventually, you know, and I've had a friend who's also been in a relationship with somebody I would say was very narcissistic. What happens is, can you imagine when you've been love bombed? You know, and it's in the early stages of that relationship. You're getting everything you ever thought you could have. Mm. And so, you know, even in spite of all your friends saying, you know, don't you think it's a bit early? It's a little bit over the top. He or she doesn't even know you yet. Can this really be very realistic? You're so in awe and grateful and glad that you're having these feelings that you, you're persuading yourself that this is the one. You know, maybe this is what real love, true love is really. Yeah. You know, this is what it feels like. Mm. So I've never had this before. So you were, and back to the reinforcement, you, you start chasing it. And as you get pulled into this dynamic with the person who then might withdraw it by not answering your texts or not returning your calls or cancelling at the last minute or sliding in comments that start to chip away at your self-esteem, you know, oh, you're putting on a bit of weight yeah. or... Mm, not sure I like you in that outfit or are you sure you want to hang out with those people? Yeah. You know, those subtle, because you've had such a powerful positive experience, you want to please, you know, you want to chase that feeling again. Mm. When this starts to happen, you get consumed. Mm. It's like the rest of the world fades, you know, into grey around you and the bubble, you and this person. Yeah. And this is why you get this experience of people feeling shut out. It's, and you're, maybe I don't know if your friend is saying it, but certainly my friend was saying, but you don't understand what he can be really like. Mm. I know him better than anyone. So you could, I could see the bubble that she and he were creating around mm. themselves. And she was getting very clear messages like, you know, don't listen to your friends. They don't understand how special we are, how unique we are. Yeah. That's happening. So That's also happening feeding, yeah. also feeding the let them go. Mm. They don't understand how wonderful this mm. is they're jealous they're envious mm. they'll want to destroy us but his friends we've everyone stepped away because of his other half right because we can all see it so what do you do in that situation we're all like step away yeah he'll know yeah one day he'll realize and they'll come back round again I mean, what can a, you do? What can you yeah, do in the situation? It's, a, it's a difficult because it, it also burns you out as friends, it, but, doesn't it? Yeah. Because you're constantly giving advice and it's not getting taken on yeah. board and you're seeing your friend, you know, being brought to ruin. Yeah, well, it's manipulation. It is. He's getting completely manipulated. He gets told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Go and get me that. Go and make me that cup of tea. Go and... It's like complete control over him mm -hmm. and he can't see it. All you can do, and it's certainly what I did uh, in my friend's uh, relationship, but also, you know, I would do professionally is, is to stay close and continue to be that voice because at some point the behavior becomes so extreme and the person will start to, the, 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 the victim, if you like, the person mm. who's at the, on the receiving end will get to that point where they almost feel like they don't know themselves anymore and they've lost their own identity because that's really what happens if this continues. Yeah. You get to the point where you don't even know your own mind. Yeah. You now can't trust your own judgment because you're getting such confusing messages yeah. and feedback. You're, sometimes you're right, 
And then for the very same reason, you're sometimes you're wrong and you can't work out the difference. And it's all part of this control and manipulation, as you said. So at some point that will become so overwhelming for the person who's on the receiving end of it, they will experience some kind of breakdown in, in terms of their ability to cope with this or how they view themselves or it might even start to affect their work. Mm. Do you think they feel? Do you think they know, but they feel embarrassed to say anything? I think there is a part of them that knows because they are confused that this can't be right. You know, I'm not feeling good in this relationship. So, and aren't I supposed to be feeling good in a great relationship? Mm. So there's a part of them that knows, but the greater part feels responsible for it not working out and wants to try and recreate that lovely mm. feeling I had at the beginning. Mm. It is possible because I had it at the beginning. So maybe if I just try harder, maybe if I do X, Y, and Z, mm. and the feedback I'm getting from him or her is, yeah, yeah, keep trying. Yeah. And I guess someone like a narcissist will break your other half down and build you up, build them up how they want you to be. Well, they will. But, you know, this is the saddest part of the whole dynamic of being in a narcissistic uh, relationship is you're only as valuable in that relationship um, as your willingness to feed their their kind of grandiose sense of self. Meaning if at any point you start to challenge them or turn around and, for example, say, you know, I'm done. I can't keep, you know, maybe I want to leave or maybe I'm not going to behave like this anymore. I'm going to put some limits and boundaries down. One of two things will happen. Either the person will try very hard to get you to back to that point where you were just, you know, running after them and chasing that feeling, or they will abandon you completely and move on to somebody else. Yeah. Because the narcissist isn't interested in working hard for this. That latter bit, I think, Mm. is that they will find someone else. New new supply, new feed. New supply, new feed, and that you'll be completely forgotten about. Yeah. And that goes back to what we said at the very beginning, which is this lack of empathy, because it's not really about you. What they're chasing is a feeling in themselves. Yeah. They're not. Sadly, they're not really choosing you as the mm. partner. They're choosing the feeling they get from you being in this mm. relationship. And once that starts to go for whatever reason, because you start to listen to your friends or you start putting limits down or you get burnt out. And, you know, in, in one case, I, a, a case I came across when I was a therapist was a woman who got so burnt out, she ended up in hospital and repeatedly ended up in hospital with stress and all kinds of physical health problems. And her partner got so tired of her being ill and unavailable, he just walked off. Yeah. It's like, you're no, no longer useful to me now. Mm. I'm done. I need to move on to somebody mm. else. What happens at the time you're in a relationship like that and you know you're going out with a narcissist, stroke psychopath, and there's alcohol involved every single day to suppress the feelings, and then there's cocaine involved, you know, that addiction for the victim, you mean. For the victim and yeah. for the other half that they're using. Mm. You know, you're not going to be in a clear state of mind to make any decisions. There'll be rash decisions being made the whole time. There will. And, you know, again, looking at who's introducing it, is that part of the manipulation tactic that's coming in from the the abusive side of the the partnership? Um, Or is it a coping strategy for, you know, the person who's feeling all these awful emotions and feeling confused and abandoned and, and... you know, wanting to create that feel again. Are they, you know, almost self-medicating, just yeah. trying to numb those feelings? I think that's what it is. It's a self-medicating. It's the numbing the Very feelings common. of whatever's happened as a trauma as a kid, which we went back to it mm. earlier. Something's happened as a kid is that they're using every single day, whether it's two bottles of wine or plus cocaine four or five times, whatever it may be. It's a form of denial. It's, yeah. it's a way of saying, I can't bear what I've 
would otherwise be feeling or thinking and I want to block it out so I don't have to deal with it or accept it or face it. And, you know, we've got to be honest also, Dodge, that some cases it's very hard to get out of these relationships, Mm. even when you know you you are dealing with a narcissist or a psychopath and you have listened to your friends or the wisdom of others Mm. and you decide you want to get out. The getting out is not easy at that Mm. point, you know, because of the manipulation that you'll face. The risk of violence, yeah. for sure, that you you may mm. uh, face. So it's not something as easy as well. Now I've seen the light. I'm I'm out. Mm. They what what keeps a lot of people in these relationships is the fear to their physical well being, certainly to their mental well being, perhaps to their children and families who are also trapped by this relationship. Mm. Often financial, because mm. one of the things that happens is this person may take control of finances as mm. well, and so you can find yourself literally paralyzed mm. in this in the situation not able to get out even though you know and what if the narcissist the right controls the purse strings well exactly which is one of the modus operandi is one of is taking as much control as possible because yeah. the more you know i as the narcissist can control the longer i can have this feed from you mm. so that might be financial it might be the housing it might be you know where you're going, it might be access to things like the car. I mean, there's so many, so many varied ways mm. in which you see control being taken mm. and manipulation being. You know, it's interesting as well, as a guy, like if you're getting physically abused by your other half, as a bloke, you've got nowhere to go to and talk to your mates because they'd be like, strap a pair, sort yourself out. And of course she hasn't been hit and by her. But that's one side of it. But what about the mental abuse you get every day from your other half? You can't see that. And a guy wouldn't go to another set of lads and go, I'm being mentally abused. There's a huge stigma, isn't there, around, you know, we typically talk about, and even now we've been referring to narcissists and psychopaths as men. Mm. But there is, and research has shown, and more and more research is showing that there is a hidden stigma for men who are the victims of abusive relationships, narcissistic relationships, Psychopathic. We don't talk about female psychopaths as much, but there certainly are people who fit that criteria. And because of the way in which we socialise men, and hopefully it's changing, but you know, I think we've got a long way to go. We're encouraging young boys and adolescents and men to be more open about mm. their experiences and their feelings, so that they would dare to go and tell somebody that this is happening. But I still think, and let's be honest, you know, we, we talked about it earlier. There's a huge stigma for guys to go around talking about their mental health challenges, Mm. to talk about potential abusive experiences from a partner, particularly if the partner's female. Mm. Um, So yeah, it's, we've got a long way to go, but I think one of the things we can be encouraging is getting younger boys earlier to talk to their friends, to talk to somebody that they respect in authority, like a teacher or, you know, having mentors. And I think having stronger role models around them as they're growing up means that the next generation of, of men perhaps will be better. Mm. I think you're right there, the next generation of men, because our generation, yeah. most men are piss takers. Most bands are the whole time taking the mickey. You can't really go to your group of mates and go, oh, my missus has been mentally abusing me last night. It's cultural, and isn't it? I calling think that's me, British, right? It's a, is it a yeah. British thing? Yeah, I think different cultures you know, have different experiences on how they handle their mm. emotions. But 
you know, we're we're in the UK now, and I think the British culture is very stiff upper lip, and mm. you know, there's a a lot of bravado around being a man, and you know, holding on to your feelings and not talking about things that yeah. would make you look and feel vulnerable. Mm. You wouldn't want to share it, and you wouldn't want your mates to hear it either, and your mates don't want to hear it either because it doesn't fit with the yeah. You know, the, the lead, bravado, the, the lead lead group. culture. Yeah. yeah. But it's very destructive not to be able to do that because we don't then get the data yeah. on how many men are suffering in these kinds of relationships and then be able to provide the services to help them. Well, what I've noticed over the last, definitely for the last five years, men's mental health has become more open for blokes to talk. Yeah. And I'm seeing a lot of different blokes of in our group, in our group actually opening up and having chats and going, oh, lad, da, 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 because right. of the, the press and everything saying men's mental health, etc. We're still... Light years behind women talking about their mental health, though. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I mean, we have made progress and you see more and more services available and open for men um, in the community. You know, whether it's community groups, social groups, you know, more and more people um, encouraging, say, young lads to go into sports, for example, or to go into group type activities where they're not isolated and alone and there's more people around to maybe build relationships and also role models. I think that's also part of it, yeah. being exposed to other role models. So we are we are seeing progress, but we have a long way to go. Mm. And what are your thoughts? I just want to roll back a bit. You mentioned about female psychopaths. You said mm. there's a lot less female psychopaths. Or do you think there's the same amount, but there's more male psychopaths that are coming into the press because of murders and the R word and the craziness of what's going on in the prison system? Well, the research shows so far, and, there, and you know, the research is flawed in itself probably, but the research is showing that there are fewer women psychopaths than there are men psychopaths. Um, but we generally, there are a couple of issues, the reason it's flawed is it's how do we classify what is a psychopath? You know, there are a couple of tools and assessment tools that we use. They have their own flaws. Um, it's very hard to get people to complete these kinds of assessments to mm. figure out. You know, populations are not very big. You're not going to go, yes, 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 <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> you'd be surprised. But, you know, the populations yeah. are small to begin with. Yeah. So, you know, the, the data isn't very robust. But we, there has been more research in criminals uh, or the offending population. And what we see there is that, you know, maybe 10 to 15% of offenders, male offenders, might be classified as psychopaths. Whereas women, it'll be less than that, significantly less. Mm. So generally speaking, there tend to be fewer females classified as psychopaths. Why is that? There is, again, research showing that perhaps men are more likely to act out their, their you know, those traits in a very physically violent and aggressive way. So they're more likely to end up committing crime and violent crime. Mm. Whereas women are more likely to be maybe demonstrating their psychopathy, if you like, in terms of being more histrionic. And by histrionic, we mean, you know, being more emotionally out of control, maybe turning it in towards themselves. You're more likely to see acts of self-harm than you are to see them hurting other people. So I think the way in which we actually classify and, and decide whether somebody is a psychopath or not probably, is, to your point, has contributed to us not classifying as many women mm. as psychopaths. I have certainly met women who are classified as psychopaths in my time, mm. both in the secure settings and in the business settings. And I, in the business settings? Yes, there are. Interesting. Yeah, there are, well, male and female psychopaths, yeah. I would say. I mean, there was a great book written by um, Robert Hare, who was 
a Canadian psychologist who actually came up with the construct of psychopathy in something called the psychopathy checklist. I trained with him back in the day, mm. actually. It was fascinating listening to his stories and experiences. And he talks about maybe one to two percent of leaders in business are actually psychopaths. And in my experience of working in business, I've worked in corporate business for a, a long time, worked in, in the health sector as well. I've certainly come across people who I would say have some of those traits. They may not have all of the traits mm. that would get them to the full-blown classification, mm. but certainly I've seen that callousness. I've seen the manipulation. I've seen the disregard of rules and laws. I've seen the you know pursuing their own agenda at every cost to other people and not, not having any moral code. Mm around that. Mm. I haven't seen necessarily violence. It wouldn't get tolerated in the business environment, mm. but I've certainly seen some very senior leaders who have some of those traits, mm. male and female. Mm. Interesting. Do you think that's a big thing up in the city? Because up in the city, everyone's out for themselves. I've got pals up there, all earning money. They're all shafting each other, they're all getting the deal and second off the mate and da, da, da. There's a lot of callousness up there and not much empathy when everyone's out for themselves. No doubt, many of them probably especially are when there's commission the involved, especially when yeah. money's involved. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. they're back to the reward. Yeah, there's good rewards involved. No doubt, they'll be showing some of those traits. They may not meet the full criteria, but if they're showing traits of, you know, being competitive to the point where you would be destructive towards another person, mm. their career, you know, literally lie in order to get ahead, mm. um, manipulate a situation to somebody else's disadvantage. To so that it advantages you mm. uh, to the point where you might even commit fraud. You know, we see that. Um, you might be abusive, bullying and harassment, you know, those kinds of abusive behaviours to get your way. For sure, you mm. would see some of those. And I think in these highly competitive environments and certainly some of these professions where the only way to succeed is to be standout and, you know, uh, kind of, brutally competitive, if you like, then I think we'll probably do see people with those traits being attracted to those kinds of mm. roles because you're not going to survive those environments if you're empathic, concerned about people's welfare, yeah. you know, wanting a just and fair yeah. process for all. You wouldn't last a day up in the city if that probably was the not. mindset. And then, yeah. and then it's maybe self-selecting, you know. We yeah. want people who are ruthless, who are willing to, and, you know, films have been made about the city, yeah. you know, kind of traders. And, I find it fascinating, you know. the whole city things. I think the amount of people we know up there, the age group have been, partying Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, going out all day lunches, smashing up on the cocaine, on the booze, and they're running the city. It's a lot of substance misuse. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Their, their they're running I mean, our you, city. You, 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 know? you couldn't function yeah. with that level of stress yeah. and mental stress without some kind of aid for, mm. for a lot of people, not for everyone, obviously. But I think that's where the, the you know extreme caffeine drugs mm. is, you know, is basically facilitating that tempo and that competitiveness. It's not sustainable. It's not Many sustainable. of them, you know, burn out and leave. It's not a lifelong career. Yeah. It's done for a period of time. You can see the haggard ones who have been there since the age of 20 up to like 40, 40, 50, and they're still there. You can you can spot them a mile off. I'm surprised many of them last that long. Actually, yeah, that's with, my... With that, what I see. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Burn out, yeah. lose the wives, you know, they... they yeah, it's a, that's a whole new subject. The whole, but maybe the ones who survive are the ones who have that personality yeah. back to the psychopathy. Yeah. But you if know? you're using cocaine and you're using alcohol and you're getting less sleep and you're in that bullying way and you're out for yourself up in the sea, you cannot think straight. You cannot make straight decisions. 
Well, very true. If you use it in moderation, which is mm. what they do to begin with, you know, and it's as true of caffeine as it is with some of these, you know, some of the drugs, if used in moderation, that people will experience a sense of confidence and clarity and energy that can bring focus. Mm. And that early experience of using it, mm. which doesn't get them into trouble and gives them perhaps a bit more energy and focus, mm. eventually isn't enough. So they start to use heavier and heavier and that's when it goes that's when goes it goes off the, the addictions off the yeah, rails, yeah. And that's once it gets off the rails. Yeah. But that early experience is what's enticing them into using it because it can actually, you know, one of the side effects of it is is that feeling of really great well-being and confidence and control, even if you don't have it, but you have that feeling yeah. of it. But what goes up, as we know, come must come down. Absolutely. Um, what have you noticed in, in, in that sort of business world that you were in regarding bullying? Have you noticed any sort of traits of the bullying there? Why? How? I think what happens, and I was because I've been fascinated by this area in business, as to how we end up with leaders who are at the top of the tree in business, you know, the CEOs, the executives, even in politics. How have they gotten there when what we would expect from leaders at that level is that they have a strong moral code, that they have, you know, worked their way to the top through delivering well, treating people well, you know, building up teams, building cultures that are healthy and high performing. But then how do we end up with, you know, and we do, like Robert Hare said, one to two percent of, of yeah. leaders who will be on that spectrum and will show bullying behaviors, harassment behaviors, manipulative, lying, you know, fraudulent. And I've worked in corporate business and one of the things I realize happens is the system rewards results, yeah. not behavior. So as long as you are producing great results, and let's think about it, business is often 99% of the time about profit. Even if the profit is then used for good purposes, mm. it's about the financial, the commercial mm. um, performance of the business. So as long as you are delivering results, that's more attractive than how you got them. Yeah. And so we, re we tend to reward the results and not ask questions about what it took to get there and not look at the trail of mm. disaster, you know, the bleeding hearts that have been left behind, mm. you know, the people that were trodden on the manipulation tactics because we're, we're going to reward, you know, these leaders for what they've actually delivered. Now, I've worked in companies where they've really tried to address that and they've, you know, got performance systems where they say, you're going to be promoted on the basis of your behavior as well as your, your results. You know, so you, you might make millions for the company, but how you got there, it matters. Mm. Those systems are very noble, mm. but the reality is even in those systems, at the end of the day, it's the results that we mm. that we find. So we encourage people to, in those systems, to take those risks, to, we reward the behaviors. Mm. You know, we'd rather you delivered, you know, financial results and how you got mm. there. So we're going to give you a, a senior leadership position. We're going to take you all the way to the top. That's crazy. And so then that, we're not surprised that when, when we see them up there, they are wielding power. The same, yeah. You know, but that toxic culture in the workplace is huge. Yeah. The amount of people come in for interviews here, we're all entrepreneurial companies, you know, yeah. the Bournemouth Sevens Festival and the podcast and the event crowd, our online events course. They come in straight away when someone's working for a corporate. It's like, out of 10, how happy are you at work? Two. Everyone's like a two, a three, a four. Why? Because it's toxic. It's toxic. And all it takes is one toxic person in a business to ruin the whole lot. 
You know, and as a boss, if you see a toxic person, you've got to pick them up and you've got to get them out. Even if they're your best salesperson, even if you're your best employee, because the knock-on effect is huge. Right. And my find is in that sort of city there, if you are rewarding your top toxic salesperson and that person gets through the ranks, he's going to carry that culture with him. It's exactly. going to get passed along, passed along, it's passed along. You're never going to get exactly. rid of that. Exactly. And that's how toxic cultures grow. And I always say it starts at the top. You know, if the leadership at the top is not recognizing that these things are taking place, then they are fostering that culture because they act as the role models. They act as the, you know, the standard setters for what's acceptable and not acceptable. And I've, you know, I did a TEDx talk on exactly this, you know, that I've seen leaders who are great at inspiring their team, motivating their team, encouraging people to challenge them, to disagree with them, you know, for the better of the of mm. the company and the results. But I've seen leaders who, you know, absolutely kill off the trust within their team through micromanagement, through those kind of over-controlling behaviors, you know, lack of positive regard for their people, not interested in who these people are as long as they get the job done. It, that just very back to callousness, you know, mm. it's, a, it's a callous approach to this is a business. We just need you to, you know, you're just here to, you're to, just serve, a number. to serve me and yeah. make me look good and produce the results. Yeah. Don't really care who you are, what's going on for you at home or what else you're here for. You know, and that shows up then in these toxic cultures. You'll you'll hear people in those teams whispering behind closed doors, yeah. not, you know, a lot of sick leave, people changing out of their jobs quite often. Yeah, it's really, really unhealthy. Mm. Imagine going to work for eight, nine, ten hours a day in a job you didn't like and you're stuck. Any advice you'd give to anyone listening out there right now if you are in a toxic culture, what they should do? If you believe that this goes all the way to the top of the organisation, you can see that you know it's all around you, right to the, the CEO and at that table, then you're not going to be able to change the system. Mm. And I, I typically say to people, start planning your exit strategy because you're not going to change the culture. For sure, if you feel it's it's useful, valuable to share your feedback about what you're experiencing, do that. But nine times out of 10, it will fall on deaf ears if it's everywhere in the organization. If you feel it's just in your team and the rest of the organization is quite healthy, but you have a leader, for example, who you feel is, you know, the anomaly is, is different and is creating this toxic culture, then Definitely, you should go and speak to somebody else in the organization about your experiences and see if you can get either a transfer to somewhere else or maybe if, and, and this is a caveat, if you if you believe your leader does have these traits of psychopathy or narcissism, you're not going to change them. Mm-hmm. Don't give them feedback. Don't tell them where you think they're going wrong. Don't suggest that they get a leadership coach in. I've seen this happen many times yeah. where somebody's tried to go up against a very toxic leader and said, you know, maybe we can have some leadership coaching and support in this team to help us. And they've, you know, before you know it, they've lost their jobs or they've been, yeah. you know, pushed down. Because the very thing when we get back to psychopaths and narcissists is that it's part of who they are as a person. Mm. And our ability to change them or change their worldview mm. is close to none. Mm. So you won't get very far trying to get them to see it differently. Mm. You're better off looking after your own mental health, putting your needs first. And finding an alternative when yeah. you can. Yeah. Very difficult situation for people. Very difficult. Especially I've seen if they've got it a mortgage. Very often. Yeah. They've got family to feed, they've got a mortgage, they're yeah. going to work every day going, I do not like my boss. I do not like the culture. I do not like my work. What am I doing with my life? Then you can understand why their mental health 
has grown so big over the last three, four, five years. Yeah. Alongside of everything that's happened since 2020. Yeah. And my bottom line is if it starts to impact your mental health, get out. Get out. Yeah. Because at that point, you're more important. And if you stay, eventually you'll probably burn out anyway and yeah. end up leaving through other reasons mm. or for other. That's an interesting one. But how would you explain what burnout is? I've, I've worked and treated people with burnout, and it's really obvious what it is when you've worked very closely to it. It can look very much like depression. You see people who are very flat in mood. They feel they have no energy and drive. They've lost that sense of purpose and motivation for the job or the work that they were doing. They feel physically and mentally exhausted by even the smallest things. And you see that they start to want to perhaps look have more sick days. You know, they're just trying to recover. They're just trying to build in some slack into their into their um, daily experience. But eventually you see them lose the joy, the joie de vivre, you know, in everything that they do. And it's not just at work. In the cases where I was working with people who had burnt out, they'd lost the joy in life at home with their kids, with their partner. They couldn't get excited about, you know, anything that was happening in their social life. They'd stop seeing friends. So burnout might start at work, but eventually... You'll bring it home. It, it affects every aspect of wow. your life. And in a couple of cases that I worked with, in with leaders who were in business, they were out of work for, I'd say, typically a, a, a classic burnout, full burnout, will take you about six months to recover from and potentially up to two years. My God. So it's not something we say, you know, I burnt out and I went back to work next yeah. week. No, Was this it, what's is the a feeling? really catastrophic Have you ever experience. had burnout? I haven't had burnout, no. but I, I. What's the feeling? Do you reckon it is? Well, what people, t you know, my clients and patients tell me, and I've seen, is it's as though somebody has unplugged you and and withdrawn all your energy. Yeah. You know, unplugged your energy levels, but also your sense of who you are and why you're here. I've certainly handled a couple of people who have become suicidal as a result of burnout because they can't see the purpose of living or being. So it's it's a depression. In many cases, depression is a massive thing. Depression is a massive thing these days, isn't it? Yeah, we have a lot of pressure on us, and we have a lot of. Why do you think challenges. we got so much pressure on us these days? To when we were growing up in the eighties and nineties, when I life... think we did then too. Do you no, reckon? I, yeah, I think you know. I look back at my mum and dad, working class, you know, um, immigrants from India, and they had a lot of pressure on them, not a lot of money, and you know, lots of kids, and trying to make ends meet, and those things. I think the pressures were there. I think they're more complex pressures now because the world has opened up and we have more choices, but with more choices and opportunities come more pressures and demands. Mm. No um, one was comparing against each other back then. Do you think not? No, in the 90s when you're going out clubbing or you're going, you didn't care what you weren't saying, you know, looking online, what you're going to wear. Did they, well, we didn't just, have the online. So this is what I'm Yeah, it was what? lovely. If you want to make a phone call, you get 10p in a, in a phone box and make a phone call. I see your pet, right. see your mate at seven o'clock, all the right. boys. Make, it was just, write a letter. It was yeah. just nice. Yeah. But we didn't know any different. And listen, there's loads of positives as there are today with social media and everything like that. But I do have really fond memories of the 90s, I have to say. I mean, it was easier because we only could compare ourselves to our immediate environment mm. easily. And then what we got through the two or three channels on TV, the moment the internet came, and now with social media, you see the challenge that places on, you know, mm. particularly our younger generation on comparing themselves to other people. You know, are they attractive enough? Are they fit enough? Are they wealthy enough? Have they got the right jobs? Mm. Are they moving in the right circles? Are they interesting enough? And all of that is bringing those added demands and pressures. And we're seeing a rise in, you know, mental health challenges earlier and earlier in, in mm. society because of those comparative 
Interesting you mentioned that. Myself Mechanisms. and Josh, my, my producer, we went on the streets down Bournemouth Beach and I took a mic down there and I was asking people, are you happy? It made people go, are you happy? And it made people stop and think, are they happy? You know, the biggest thing, and then I was, and I was asking uh, uh, women, sort of from the ages of like 18 up to 25, are you happy? Do you like social media? What don't you like about social media? The biggest thing out of everyone who answered, what they didn't like about social media as a girl was about body dysmorphia. Yeah. Comparison their bodies. Yeah. I was blown away by that. Yeah. Literally blown away. Because it was girl after girl after girl said exactly the same thing. They weren't, you know, we were 300 metres or half an hour apart every time we were interviewing someone. I think social media has a lot to, to answer, answer for. for. Agree. Because, you know, it's, there's just so much now on on those social media apps about appearance, about you know, how you can improve your appearance, whether it's through makeup or surgery or, you know, I mean, it's, it's just crazy, really, how much pressure there is to look a certain way and that you don't, you know, you that pressure to feel that you only belong if you do look a certain mm. way. And you know, that's what the comparison's about. You know, why do I care whether somebody looks amazing and they've, you know, had plastic surgery to do that or, you know, they can afford the clothes to do that? Maybe it's because I think that's what happy looks like. Yeah. Happy looks like that because I don't have those things. Maybe I, you know, that's what's causing my unhappiness. But when you ask, it's interesting that you went around asking that question mm. because my first question would have been, well, happy in what sense? Mm. You know, I can be happy with some aspects of my being and my life and mm. my choices and not happy about others. But mm. am I happy in myself in terms of who I am yeah. and what I stand for and you know, that's, that's a much deeper question. And then you get into these yeah. questions around, you know, my identity and how do I identify? And But yeah. I ask my mates this a lot. What do you get? I ask them a lot. Not, how you doing, mate? Or anything like that. Are you happy? It throws them. It makes them think. And then I have to repeat again. Are, are you happy? And they have to think and go, no, in fact, I'm not happy. Or, yeah, I'm actually really happy. It's, it's interesting. It's a, it's a huge construct, it's a, isn't it? Well, it's a huge... And you don't know what people are answering to. Yeah. So, you know, we asked each other the question. Yeah. Would we be saying, using the same measurements mm. for happiness? You know, are you happy? I'm happy. Yeah. I can say that easily because yeah. I know what I'm. my constructs or measurements are for that. You know, it's about having my son, you know, makes me happy. Mm. I have the freedom to work the way I'd like to work. Mm. That makes me happy. Mm. I have great relationships. Mm in my life make me happy those are the those are the measurements for happiness for same me. good yeah. mates yeah. good missus good yeah. boy good yeah. family good yeah. food yeah nice holidays not yeah. into cars not into watches not into all of that material what i look like what clothes bollocks. i wear yeah. what you know does yeah. it, that's not those aren't the measurements so when you ask mm. that question i'm wondering what are they what are the measurements they're using yeah and also the word and i say to my my boy every morning three things you're grateful for today and he's nine so every day he answers three things. Dad had a really nice sleep. Woke up in a nice home. I'll go to a nice school. Oh, I've got a nice meal. And just to, not to drill, but to, I guess maybe to drill, to, to realise what gratitude is. And it's a mindset. Isn't yeah, it? it's so a huge mindset. It's what you're encouraging. Yeah, isn't mindset. It's it a mindset. Yeah. And I believe, I'm a great believer that mindset is the difference between, you know, those people who have a sense of happiness, whatever yeah. that is, and the people who don't have a sense of happiness, mm. it's mindset. 100% you know. mindset is a powerful yeah. thing that people only yeah. use 2% of. I mean, I, caveat being, you know, there are lots of people who can't be happy for, because they don't have even the basics to be, you know, yeah. I had a good sleep, I had slept in a warm bed, I yeah. had, 
water to shower in. Yeah. And if you don't have those things, then I think, you know, it's not about happiness, it's about mm. basics. Mm. But generally, I'd say if you, you know, have the basics in place, then it's about mindset. Mm. I just want to roll back a bit. Mm. I want to go back to the psychopaths. Mm. I want to go back to your mind when you're in Broadmoor and you know you're going to meet Reggie or Ronnie Cray or you're going to meet Sutcliffe. Why are you there? Just to sell the, just to let them know that, yeah, they are psychopaths. <laughs> no. So with the role that we had, there were several roles that we had, but one of the main roles we had was to do a risk assessment. You know, when people come into those environments, we want to know as much as we can about why they did what they did, how they did it, and what's the likelihood of them doing it again if they were to be released. Now, for many of these people, they were never going to be released again. What you may not know is if you go into a hospital setting, um, you don't have what we call a tariff, um, typically. You, well, there's two cases. You would come into the hospital and your ability to be released is based on the medical opinion of the of the psychiatrist ah, okay. there on whether they think you pose a risk or not. So you, you might have been given a tariff, a year, a sentence for 20 years. Let's say you went to prison and then they think, well, actually, there's a mental condition here that needs treating. So they send you to the special hospital. It's now up to the the doc, the psychiatrist looking after you to okay. decide whether you can or not be released. So we were often a psychologist working with alongside those those doctors and nurses okay. to see what kind of risk do they pose if we were to move them into medium security, for example. What's the likelihood of them trying to abscond to yeah. to, to leave or hurting somebody else because there'll be less supervision? The walls aren't there anymore. They'll have more freedoms. They'll have more access to other people. So you'll be like, can we put them in full open we, prison? Right. Can we put them yeah. into the community? Okay. Can we get give them day releases? Okay. Can we allow them to socialise with other people? And are you asking questions or are you just sitting observing? No, we're asking questions. Interviewing. Okay. Like this, in, I'd be in a room on okay. a one-to-one sitting directly with you. Okay. Um, we're very in a in a private cell if you like um, by yourself yep absolutely did you ever have the fear no back to my earlier point once you're in those environments everything's quite managed and controlled so if i described the setting to you you'd have a a ward because it's a hospital and you would have the day room and the nursing station you know like you would in any hospital mm. the day room where the patients could go in and mingle yeah. together and the nursing station where they're doing their observations and meeting and then you'd have a long corridor and the individual rooms for those patients as we would call them in the hospital and we would have meeting room where we'd go on to I'd go onto the ward speak to the staff to check in and find out how the patient I'm going to see is doing today make sure there's nothing I need to be very aware of changes to their health their mental status any risks I need to be aware of um, who they visited recently what kind of day they're having and armed with that information then I would make the judgment about you know do I think it's wise to go and meet with them on mm. my own most of the time it was fine. We'd go into the room. We were trained as clinical forensic psychologists on all kinds of ways of managing our physical environment to make sure that we were safe. So if I walked into a room, I wouldn't sit in the corner at the back and let the patient sit by the door. If I was, I wouldn't do that most, probably every time, but certainly if I thought there was a risk of you know this person having some kind of emotional reaction to what we were going to talk about. I would always sit by the door. There's always a, a, an alarm, a, a red button on the wall near the door that you could use in case of emergency if you needed assistance. And if you press that, the alarms would ring through the, the corridors and the nursing team would come and, 
and assist. The nursing team or bodyguards? Well, or they're called nurses because we're in Broadmoor being a special hospital. Yeah. The terms we use are the, all, okay. all hospital, hospital terms. Okay. Whereas in a prison, you would have prison guards yeah. and you wouldn't call them patients, you would call them offenders. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's the same thing. It's the same just thing. Just different names. Different language okay. because it's a hospital. Did you ever get bribed? By the by, the patients or offenders. By the offenders. Was no. there any bribery going on? No, there was a lot of manipulation mm. attempts, you know, and particularly with psychopaths because that's a classic modus operandi, to try and you know make you feel so special. It was one of the things I would always say when I when I was more experienced that when you first come into the profession, you need to be very aware of some of the ma- manipulation tactics that you can be exposed to, mm. and one of them was, you know, a, a patient or an offender saying to you very quickly and early on, you know, I think you're you're probably the smartest psychologist I've ever met. I think you're different. I think you get me. You know, I think this is going to work well because I don't think you're like all the rest. Mm. Now, if you're naive to the manipulation tactics involved or feeling quite, you know, I needed to hear that, that's that's great. You know, I want to be the one who cracks the code when it comes to this particular person or gets to build a relationship and really get, you know, wants to do a good job. You can fall for some of those tactics, but the, the it really is a tactic to draw you in to one, perhaps getting, you know, manipulated for favours or into a relationship that has been, that has happened. It's happened. Unfortunately, that has happened. With yourself? No, gosh, oh, no, no, gosh, no, no. Okay. absolutely not. But I have heard of, you know, nursing staff and psychologists having gotten into relationships with really? offenders where that manipulation. But that's the really same. That's the same in the prison system. Absolutely. Female yeah. prison officers with prisoners. That's that's rife. Yeah. Mm. And it, for me, it's a lack of competence. You know, you if you're trained well, you know that these are the tactics. We were always in a supervisory relationship with another person. So we would go back and talk to them about the conversations we'd had with these people and and what was being done so we could have a sounding board to make sure we weren't being duped or drawn into mm. anything uncomfortable. Were there prisoners who wanted to get to Broadmoor because it's an easier... Yeah. So they were pretending to be psychopaths. Did you ever come across that? It certainly came across, we call them malingering, you know, kind of feigning um, mental illness. I always was surprised at that because they, I think it was more based on a fantasy perhaps of what they thought they might be getting when they get there until they realise that once you get there, your tariff, your sentence now is in the hands of a psychiatrist who might decide whether or you're fit for oh, release so, or okay, not. So it's yeah. not always the best yeah. place. And you've got to go into treatment. It's not a cosy option, mm. but you might have the fantasy that it looks and sounds like a cosy option. But now you're going to be expected to speak to the psychiatrists, the psychologists, the nurses, the social workers, attend therapies and all those kinds of things. And that's not easy. That's not an easy option by any stretch of the imagination. But there certainly were a couple of cases where people were malingering their symptoms, exaggerating their symptoms. What's going through your mind when you're sitting there interviewing a killer? I'm curious more than anything else. I have a, an insane curiosity for for individuals' stories and experiences and the mind. So I perhaps detach a little bit, and it's the only way you know you can cope with some of the things that you're going to hear, is to separate yourself a little bit from you know what's being shared because you would hear heinous details of you know what the person has done and the experiences that the victims might have gone through. And so being able to be slightly detached in order to be able to do your work is helpful. So what's going through my mind is how, what questions do I need to be asking 
to get the kind of information that is important for mm. what I'm doing. Um, what are you, I'm also at the same time thinking, what are you thinking of me mm. in this situation? And how is my presence affecting what you're going to share? So I'm looking at body language. I'm looking at listening to the tone of voice. I'm listening to their responses. I'm not just in my own head about what I want to ask and what I want to know. Yeah. I'm observing. I'm reading between the lines. I'm thinking and listening to what's not being said as much as what is being said. And over a course of time, I'm looking for patterns and inconsistencies over the several meetings that we might have. You know, and it's it's I say it's a little bit like playing. You know, the, uh, chess with the curiosity yeah. of the mind. You know, you're you're planning your your route of questions and responses, but at the same time, you know, you've got to be aware of the other person's moves. Mm. At the, you know, yeah. uh, and how they might affect the, question, the conversation that you're having and the consequences of that. Have you ever spoken to the victims of any of the psychopaths you've dealt with? Not in my work during Broadmoor because we were very much involved with working with the uh, the offenders once they were in or patients once they were in. But I have spoken to victims of of those kinds of violent crimes in other settings. Yeah. What sort of I read the depositions they're called, you know, okay. read the statements from from victims, which are very hard hitting when you read them. Yeah, of of what they've experienced and what they've gone through. What sort of criminals have you dealt with over the last thirty years? The area that I specialised in most during my PhD was sex offenders. So Ugh, I I can't even I can't even it's a it's a I can't tough, even go there. It's a tough category. Yeah. I was f- interested in finding out what causes you know, and these were sexual psychopaths. Or se- I looked at two groups of people, sex offenders who were predatory, meaning that they had carefully planned for a long time often. In one case, it was about 18 years, the eventual offence. Um, so one, so just the, sorry mm. there, are you saying some one guy planned for 18 years mm. for one? Mm. He'd blend for a long time. There were a lot of other offences yeah. that had taken place en route, more minor offences relative to mm. the one that, that got him into prison, but had planned for a very long time to have this eventual experience of murdering somebody. Um, so I was looking at, you know, what what are the mechanisms that, that lie behind somebody being a predator versus somebody who is what we would call an opportunist, meaning the difference being, you know, perhaps this guy knows that he wants to murder, rape, a particular type of person and has planned for that and thought about it carefully, knows when they're going to do it, where they're going to do it, who the victim's going to be, maybe even stalked that victim for a long time, versus somebody who wants to have that experience but doesn't have it all planned out in detail, will be walking down the street and if there's an opportunity, you know, the right person in the right place at the right time in their view then we'll take that opportunity so it's not as well planned. And I wanted to know the difference between mm. these two groups of people, you know, because you, we, you've seen organised crime on yeah. TV and all the shows, yeah. right? You know, when, yeah. if you've seen The Spanish Heist, yeah. have you seen it's that? It's great, yeah. It's not fabulous. Mm. There's a great depiction of the psychopath in, mm. in, the, in that, actually. And you've seen how well organised they are and how meticulous the planning is in order to execute that one event yeah. and how long in advance, years in advance, they have to, yeah. they have to do that. Versus the opportunist who may want to, you know, rob a bank, probably not the best example because they're usually very well planned, but, you know, maybe wants to walk into a shop, let's mm. say, and kind of grab t- mm. cash from the till. Mm. 
hasn't thought it really well through, mm. but knows that, you know, if I hang around the street long enough and I see that there's an opportunity when there's nobody in the shop to run in and grab mm. something, I will. And what I found in my research is that the main difference between these two was the role, these two was the role of fantasy and the importance that fantasy plays. Fantasy? Fantasy. My God. And this is what really drives the different behaviours. So the predator sex offenders, and not just sex offenders, by the way, a lot of organised crime, and let's take the Spanish heist as an example, mm. it starts with a fantasy, an idea in your mind. You know, wouldn't it be great to rob the bank? You know the, the Bank of Spain in that mm. in that in the heist, and you start to dream and fantasize about what that might look like, and then you start to dream and fantasize about what it would take. Now, what these offenders were doing in my research, I found the sex offenders were doing, were they were spending a lot of time in fantasy and sexual fantasy, thinking about what they wanted to do, and then as that first seed of of idea grew, it, they added more and more detail into it. And they would try out, for example, let's say, you know, one of the offenders really had a uh, an urge or the fantasy was to be able to, there was somebody at work that they were attracted to, really wanted to have a relationship with her, probably felt they never could. So maybe they were thinking about forcing themselves on her. But it would be too much of a leap to go from thinking about, you know, this person mm. to actually grabbing mm. her and, you know, in the middle of the office or on her way home. So you might see what we call a kind of a slow growth of the fantasy and testing out. I used to call it, it was I used to call it the snowball mm. effect. So you might start with maybe brushing past her a little closely or trying to get into conversations with her. Maybe the first part of the fantasy then is fulfilled. I've been close to her. But that's not satisfying after a while. So now I need to go one step further. Maybe the next time I need to actually ask her for a drink. Okay, now I build that into my fantasy. So the fantasy grows with more and more mm. detail over time. And, and at each stage, it becomes, it's rewarding for a little while and then it loses its power. Mm. So you need to add something else into okay. it. And that's how the offense, the offenses yeah. in a way get more and more serious. Because it goes from, you've maybe heard of police cases recently, right, in London. Mm where that police officer in the Met was caught, was known mm. for exposing himself. Mm. That's one of the classic precursors of serious violent crime later on, and we saw that in his case. So we would want to know if somebody is perhaps exposing themselves early in that fantasy, getting a thrill from the exposing. But at, after a while, that's not going to be enough. So then they'll need to go to touching, probably. Yeah. And that, for a while, will be okay, but then it won't be enough. So then we'll need to go to the next, which no, is perhaps okay. actually having yeah. you know non-consenting... Mm some kind of form of touch yeah. in other ways. And we saw that very clearly in his case, go all the way to sexual murder. And those were the people I was looking at. And I found that fantasy was really the arena in which they tested out their ideas, added detail and created the plan. Mm. And then executing that plan in detail. Because the, the fantasy was the arena. And we all use fantasy, mm. Dodge. I mean, mm. apart from sexual fantasy, we use it, you know, if you're going to go for a work, a, a job interview, mm. You know, you, you, we spend a little time fantasizing mm. about what would it be like if I got that job. Mm. Well, visualization, like? well, isn't it? Well, visualization. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a movie in yeah. your mind. You know, what am I going to wear? Where yeah. am I going to sit? How's it going to be? What might they ask? What were you thinking today? 
about well, I, I, yeah. for sure. I what imagined. were you thinking today before you come Absolutely. here? Absolutely. Imagine I did my homework. I kind of watched your podcast and you know thought what's this, what's the studio going to feel like and we're going to meet in person. It's going to be different to doing it online. Yeah. And so I had a kind of you know thought process and an imagination about what and preparing myself for mm. you know what we would talk about. Mm. That preparation is really helpful, isn't it? Because it reduces you know anxiety or helps you to mm. make sure that you're going to be the best you can be for the other person too. Mm. In the in the case of the offenders, they were using it as an arena for testing risks. But basically, that's what the fantasy arena well, is for. Testing risks to see if they can get away with yes. things. So, okay. you know, maybe I went out and, you know, to that case of the girl in the office and I dared to ask her if she'd like to go for a drink and she says no. So how in my fantasy am I going to address that? What can I do differently? Maybe I won't ask her for a drink. Maybe... I will follow her home, lower risk, don't have to face the rejection. And, you know, that that's okay for a while. I can I can cope with that. But then it's not enough just to follow her. So I'm going to add something into the detail. Maybe I'm going to walk up to tap her on the shoulder and mm. say hi, you know, and then for a while that's okay in my fantasy, but that's not really enough because now I really want to have some. So you're wanting, they want to be pushing boundaries all the time. They want, yeah. you know what's really driving it in these cases they want more and more arousal yeah. because that's what's driving the behavior. So it's the arousal that isn't enough at each of these stages. Mm. you know. And in the Met case, it wasn't enough. Eventually, it had to go all the way to abduction and murder. That was the, the ultimate you know, reinforcement was, or the reinforcement of the arousal. So in my research, I saw that fantasy was really, really important for the predators. It was important for the opportunists because they were thinking about all of this mm. stuff, but they didn't use it as a re- an arena for premeditated planning in the same way. Mm. You know, they, they didn't take it all that way. They were in some ways, I would say, arguably even more dangerous because they were so unpredictable. With the ones who were careful and meticulous in their mm. planning, you could see the pathway to violence. Yeah. You could see the pathway to the murder. Yeah. So you could then, with hindsight, and now, you know, we can we can say some of these early behaviours like exposure are the antecedents of later. For later, yeah. Do you know what really winds me up about this whole thing? Mm. Is how sex offenders, paedophiles, can actually get a sentence, come out, and then change their name. Right. There's a disconnect, isn't there, between the law in, in which, which is about changing names and identity and um, and you makes know, my blood those boil. things versus you know the crimes that you. Mm. We do have the sex offender register, which is a way of making sure that we track people regardless of change of name, so they don't get to be off the register just because they've changed their name. So they will still be tracked uh, and held to account. But how tracked? Well, yeah. There that's, are lots of different ways that they're attract. You mm. know, they are tracked, and they do have to report in to the authorities on a regular basis. You know, and they have restrictions to them depending on the type of crime and and, yeah. and sentence. They will have areas of you know geographical areas they're not allowed to go to and visit. You know, it could be earlier victims, it could be schools or where vulnerable people are. So mm. there will be you know conditions mm. to what they can and can't do. What does your day to day look like these days? Far from those days in yeah. Baltimore, I can tell <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> so, Good stories, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, now I, I work with businesses yeah. and sports. And I... The England rugby team. I have worked with the England yeah. rugby team, yes. Good. Yeah. So... Um, Out of interest, what were you doing with the England rugby team? 
Find so, out how many psychos are in the squad. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't hire me for that. Um, I was working with Eddie Jones, who's the head co- was yeah. the head coach at the yeah. time, and his coaching team, and just assisting them in. You know, I, I'm a specialist in influence and negotiation, and you know the kind of the geeky parts of how we communicate with other people and the psycho all the psychology that I was trained in. I mm. now share when I, when I coach others. You know how to work with difficult people, how to you know, influence somebody to get them to perform, you know, in a positive influence. Mm. You know, it's not about manipulation. It's about having that positive intention on how can I communicate in such a way that the other person understands my message, is motivated to do the task. Um, how can we build a team? You know, what are the group dynamics we need mm. to create a high-performing team? So in my work, I was working with communication with them on how they communicated as a coaching team. Brilliant. Yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, great fun. Reckon- so that's what I do in business and, and with sports teams and i've heard so many good reports on you oh yeah have you reports may be the wrong word but i've heard so much great stuff from different people that's very kind Mm. i didn't know you'd been doing your homework Mm. beforehand Mm. amazing where can before we finish up here where can people find you a good place to find me i you know i have an awkward name and people find it hard to remember in google Mm. but if you google nashata N-A-S-H-A-T-E-R, up pops because it's, you know, my name is rare and unusual. So you will find me on Google if you Mm. put Nashita in. Um, LinkedIn is a great place to find me. I'm pretty good at getting back to people if they find me on LinkedIn. Um, And certainly when you Google me, my website will come up and you can contact me, contact me there. And your website? Nashita Dow Solheim. Wonderful. It's a mouthful. That is a mouthful, isn't it? Do you know the alternative, I will say, either Google Nashita, <laughs> yeah. look them up, or my company, which is called Progressing Minds. Progressing Minds. That's yeah. powerful. Yeah. You know, I've really, really enjoyed this episode. It's been great fun talking to you. It's been great, isn't it? Yeah, could have talked for hours. For hours. We could have gone yeah. and done a three-hour one, but <laughs> yeah, maybe there's a part two time. later on. Maybe. I was yeah. just thinking that. We could definitely This has been really it. fascinating. This is a complete oh, new you. area for us, and but thoroughly enjoyed you making coming on and obviously making the effort to come all the way over from... Norway. Norway. It's been wonderful. I've loved it. It's been great. Well worth it. You're a superstar. Likewise. Lovely. Cheers. 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 Thanks, Dodge.